Welcome to Pediagogy. I'm Tammy. And I'm Lydia. And we're pediatric residents at UC Davis Children's Hospital in Sacramento. This podcast reviews common conditions in children to enhance our knowledge and the knowledge of other residents, medical students, and any other interested learners. With that, let's delve right into the case. So today's case is a six-month-old boy born at 25 weeks gestation, presenting with belly breathing and head bobbing in the setting of two days of cough and runny nose with lots of sick contacts at home. What are you thinking about, Lydia? Sounds a lot like bronchiolitis. We see this a lot in the hospital and emergency room, particularly in the winter season. In fact, bronchiolitis is the most common cause of hospitalization in infants less than 12 months. So what is it? Bronchiolitis is inflammation of the bronchioles, which are our smaller airway tubes, so it's a lower respiratory tract infection in contrast to the upper respiratory tract infections like the common cold. In our younger kids, the inflammation and mucus that comes with a respiratory infection can block their teeny tiny bronchioles, leading to airway obstruction and increased work of breathing. So in the ED, the typical presentation we see is a young kid with tachypnea, increased work of breathing like retractions, tracheal tugging, nasal flaring, runny nose, nasal congestion, and cough. When you listen to their lungs, they're very noisy and variable. You might hear anything from wheezes, rawls, bronchi, and the exam changes constantly, which is very classic. So what do you do for these kids? They can look pretty sick sometimes, and you might be tempted to do everything for them, like labs, chest x-ray, oxygen, even sometimes asthma medications if you hear that wheezing. But you really shouldn't do that in most cases. Not that you should do this all the time, Tammy, but if you happen to do a respiratory viral swab, what would be the most common bug you'd see in these patients? Well, definitely respiratory syncytial virus, which is a bit of a mouthful to say, so most people just call it RSV. I know that one's the most common, but any respiratory virus can cause bronchiolitis, so we can think of rhinovirus or enterovirus. Bronchiolitis is a clinical diagnosis based on history and exam. It's important to remember that bronchiolitis is really only diagnosed in kids 24 months or younger, so two years or less. After that age, we want to think about other causes like pneumonia, or asthma, though it still could be a viral lower respiratory tract infection. So how do we manage bronchiolitis? Well, per the AAP guidelines, it's really supportive care and symptom management. You can use nasal suctioning if they seem congested, fluids if they seem dehydrated, and supplemental oxygen if they're hypoxemic. That's about it, though. Yeah, and with regards to fluids, remember that if they're working really hard to breathe, they're not going to be drinking a whole lot. You also need to account for increased insensible losses if they're breathing faster and consuming more energy. So generally, we like to put the kids on maintenance IV fluids or even give them a bolus if they're having a history or exam concerning for dehydration. If you're not confident on how to calculate maintenance fluids or for fluids accounting for dehydration, please be sure to check out our fluids episode. Something else about fluids to know is that you don't always need to give it through an IV. If a kid is refusing to eat by mouth, so PO, but doesn't have signs of impending respiratory failure that would require intubation, you can always do some shared decision-making with the parents about placing a nasogastric or an NG tube instead of a PIV and give the feeds through there, which can better support these young patients' growing bodies more than the plain old IV fluids. But going back to oxygen saturation, at UC Davis, we usually aim for a goal of greater than 90% awake and greater than 88% asleep. This isn't based explicitly on AAP guidelines, because the AAP actually says that you may choose not to give supplemental oxygen for oxygen saturations greater than 90%. 
They also state that a continuous pulse ox is optional for those who don't require the supplemental oxygen because sometimes the constant monitoring can lead to unnecessary intervention and stress for the parents. The AAP guidelines recommend against a bunch of other things, such as albuterol, epinephrine, systemic steroids, antibiotics, or chest physiotherapy. So, like we were talking about earlier, kids with bronchiolitis can look like asthma because of the increased work of breathing and wheezing. But the wheeze is due to mucus plugging and debris in the airway versus bronchospasm, as you might see in asthma. So albuterol really isn't as effective as suctioning and therefore isn't routinely recommended. Furthermore, regular use of albuterol leads to increased costs and sometimes incorrect diagnoses of early reactive airway disease. Additionally, although the AAP doesn't recommend a chest x-ray on everyone, it's often obtained if the exam or history is concerning for pneumonia or a foreign body. And antibiotics shouldn't be used for a viral infection, so definitely don't think about that. You might think that chest physiotherapy would work since it's a lower airway disease, but that hasn't shown to be that effective for these smaller airways, and young patients often don't like it that much anyways. Hypertonic saline hasn't been shown to be effective in the emergency department setting, but there may be some benefit when they're hospitalized on the floor, even though there isn't that much great evidence for it either. So what things do they recommend that we do? Like we said earlier, the only thing that seems to work is suctioning. Interesting. So it seems like suction is really the only way to go. The guidelines also talk about oxygen. Not all kids with bronchiolitis need to be admitted necessarily, but some kids may need a little extra help with supplemental oxygen, in which case they stay in the hospital. At UC Davis, we use a Respiratory Assessment Classification, or RAC, based on the kids' tachypnea, work of breathing, and mental status based on their age. We start high-flow nasal cannula if they score in the severe category, and then consider starting high-flow if moderate score, and we've tried all the other supportive care measures like suctioning, hydration, antipyretics, and low-flow oxygen. I remember on the floor at UC Davis, we start high-flow nasal cannula at 2 liters per kg per minute, with a max of 20 liters per minute at 50% FiO2. We usually aim for a goal of oxygen saturation greater than 90% awake, and greater than 88% asleep, and then we titrate down as they improve their oxygen saturation and work of breathing. Most kids admitted for bronchiolitis stay for two to three days, but some can get extra sick and need to go to the PICU for extra respiratory support, which may include things like high-flow nasal cannula, positive pressure ventilation, or even intubation. Those that aren't admitted should be given strict return precautions in case these kids clinically worsen. Although we're often taught that bronchiolitis symptoms peak on days three to five of illness, and parents should definitely be counseled on this, there's actually a recent study that was published in pediatrics, interestingly, that showed no association between the day of illness of admission and the length of hospitalization, as well as readmission rates. Wow, so that's super interesting. We can link that article down below in the episode details. There's also some cool medications that we can give for certain high-risk babies to prevent them from getting bronchiolitis. Babies with chronic lung disease of prematurity, meaning a gestational age less than 32 weeks and needing oxygen for at least the first 28 days of life or congenital heart disease can receive palivizumab. It's a bit of a handful to say, but that's a recombinant antibody against RSV. However, it's very expensive and insurances will only cover it for those patients who are at high risk. We also counsel families to limit smoke exposure as this can worsen bronchiolitis. So let's hear from Dr. Rory Karaman Kretzmer, one of our pediatric pulmonologists at UC Davis, on some new developments for bronchiolitis. For full disclosure, he has 
been a researcher for MedImmune slash AstraZeneca and Inanta clinical trials. So there's a variety of um, new approaches that are being studied for the prevention and treatment of RSV-related respiratory disease, since it has a significant burden on young children as well as transplant recipients and some older adults. One of the most exciting developments is the possibility of a new passive immunization approach. Currently, we use palivizumab, and the burden on families was once monthly injections during um, the season for RSV is quite high. Um, so there is a longer half-life um, antibody being developed and is in phase three clinical trials. Some of the data has already been published and it offers the opportunity to possibly reduce injections to once per season rather than once per month during the season. There's also a variety of additional approaches that are being studied, including immunizations of mothers during pregnancy, as well as antiviral agents um, that may be options in the future, but those trials are earlier in development. So let's sum up what we learned today. Bronchiolitis is a viral infection of the lower airway, commonly due to RSV, or respiratory syncytial virus, and we see it in our young kids under the age of two. Bottom line for bronchiolitis management is that it's largely supportive care, focusing on hydration, suction, and oxygen if needed. That's all for this episode. You can find additional information in the podcast description and our social media resources. Please rate and subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Twitter at PediagogyPod. That's P-E-D-I-A-G-O-G-Y-P-O-D. Special thanks to Orlando Magania for podcasting production support and Dr. Su Ting Lee and Dr. Lena Vanderlist for supervision. We are supported by funding from the UC Davis Medical Center Department of Pediatrics and the Western Association of Pediatric Program Directors. 